so welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am your host, Megan Reardon Jarvis, and I have the express delight to sit down with Natasha Sislow today, who is going to be talking to us about her incredible book that is creating all kinds of noise, All Signs Point to Paris. Natasha, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Truly an honor. Thank you. This is so fun. So I want to talk about your book. I want to talk about sort of the process of coming to the story and who you are in the world. So the question that I usually ask people is, you know, how do you, how did you come to find yourself in the world of grief and loss? Well, this really is the story of that. So the story, my story is the story about this book is that my, I was at a real low in life. My father was diagnosed with pulmonary fibrosis. He really was one of my North stars and my rock. And he had a few weeks left to live. And my best friend gifted me an astrology reading and it sent me on this journey to Paris to track down my soulmate, but really what it was, was a promise that my dad made to me on, it was really the last conversation that he had with me on his deathbed and where he promised that he would meet me in Paris after he died. Mm. And my grief changed everything for me. I mean, the loss of my father was, was major in so many ways, it changed my whole life. And after he passed, I really hit the floor floor. I mean, I could not pick myself up. It just was a very, very difficult process that him, you know, leaving this earth or his, you know, body. And, and then I had a really hard time picking myself back up, but somehow I did. And then I decided to honor that promise that I had made to him to meet him in Paris with my sister. And I went on this kind of wild, wacky, weird, grief adventure. I mean, that's what it was. It was really this, I didn't know it at the time. I, a lot of people thought I lost my mind, you know, and a lot of people thought I actually was doing something so crazy and really cool. And, but they didn't know inside. I was just trying to find me, I guess, or him or, or resolve things or just go through the grief process. So on the outside, it really is like a fun, wacky, wild adventure of going to Paris to track down, you know, every person I could find that was born on November 2nd, 1968, because of an astrologer, but really inside I was resolving and and going through all of the different stages of grief. And at the very end of it, I think in the writing of this story, finding a sense of meaning and purpose in it. And so, you know, that's kind of grief changed everything. I mean, it even feels like it changed me on a cellular level. I can feel it in my whole system. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it does, right? Like it does yeah. change everything. I was saying to someone they were they were commenting on the the Queen's procession. It was as it was going through London, we were on the phone and she said, God, you know, can you imagine if that was your mother's funeral? And I was mm-hmm. like, Yeah. I can actually, because that's how big it feels in your life. That's how big it feels. It feels like the entire world should stop. So you did your trip with your sister. Yeah. My sister and my two best friends. Yeah. But my sister and I, you know, it was her grief journey as well. You know, it was, 
Yeah, and for me too, it was also running away from the questions of how are you? You know, how are you doing? And I was like, I'm fine. I just dyed my hair blonde. I'm going to Paris. Like <laughs> I couldn't deal with the reality of, you know, so I tried to turn it, I guess, into this kind of magical, weird, and I did. It did become this really beautiful thing, but I couldn't run away. It you can't, you can't run away from grief. Yeah. You just can't, you know. My youngest son had started a new soccer team. So my mom died over the summer and I came back and, you know, I was like tan. So people were like, oh, it was your summer. I mean, it was so brutal. And my youngest son was on a new soccer team that like he had been assigned to the wrong school catchment area. So I didn't know any of the parents and I didn't know the coach and I didn't know, I, I knew the assistant coach. And I went to those games and was like, nobody's mom died. There's been no death. How are you doing? Like, I just had this little vacation of pretending. And then I showed up to one game and clearly the assistant had told people. Cause then all of a sudden this group of people were like, oh, hey, we didn't, or, or they learned somehow. Right. I was like, ah, oh, but I liked, cause you can't escape it, but you can yeah. a little bit get these little moments. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and then I started docu- and I did it very publicly. First, I was doing this very much in my own little world. I'm like, you know, Tara, we're going to, my sister's name is Tara. You know, I'm serious about this. I'm going to Paris. I'm going to go track down, you know, every person. And, you know, she says, wait, are you, wait, what? <laughs> you're not really going to do this, are you? I was like, yeah, I'm doing this. And you're going to come with me. And, you know, we promised dad we're going, and this is what it's going to be. And I started doing it very quietly and privately, but then I started doing it publicly because I started an Instagram because I was targeted advertising to find men yeah. and parents and, and it kind of grew. And then all of a sudden something that I was running from and not wanting to talk about, I actually found a way to talk about it in teeny tiny little blips on social media of all places, which is, you know, so foreign to what I was doing before. And I found a lot of healing in the connection of people reaching out and saying, like you're saying to me, me too. that happened to me too. Yeah. You know, I lost my father. I lost this person. I have, I'm struggling with this. My father's in hospice, my mother, and, and you find community and connection in something that we're told we historically, we don't really talk about. We're not allowed to have a space to talk about this because it's uncomfortable, you know, and nobody really wants to really go through the motions of what it's like to sit with hospice nurses and to sign DNR papers and to talk to morticians. And that's a pretty rough conversation to bring up. It's easier to talk about my hair color. That's right. Yeah, That's absolutely right. And I, and I think the brutality of those conversations are something that's still inside your system, right? So like, there's the normal me that can, you know, whatever you bring up some conversation that I'm like, oh, wow, that's a little awkward. I wouldn't have brought that to the table right away. Or I bring that conversation up you know, in my normal everyday life, I know how to sort of like use humor or navigate or whatever. But when you're grieving, you're so covered in all of your own feelings all the time that your attunement and your ability to have other people make sense, or you make sense to other people is really, again, you don't feel like yourself because you are not yourself. These are not things that are logical. They are, but they make sense to grievers. They yeah. make sense, which is you needed something to do at a time where you have all this energy inside your system and we, no one's taught us and partly no one's taught us because what can they teach us? We have to invent right. ourselves. Right. And it's so different for every single person. So you, it's hard to teach. 
Right. Um, you say, well, my dad died. So let me tell you what you should do. You should go to Paris and get an astrologer. I mean, <laughs> it's like, I don't think that's how that's going to go now. Were you interested in astrology before this process? Hmm. Yeah. No, 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 no. I was the biggest cynic ever. I mean, I was so judgy and I was raised, my father was, you know, a man of science and logic and facts and MIT and just very, I mean, he didn't believe in, he didn't want a funeral. He didn't want to, he didn't believe in, well, so I thought at the very end of his life, you know, things kind of changed when we had a few of those conversations, but my best friend, when she saw that I was at a real low, it wasn't just my dad getting ill. It was also a heartbreak and post-divorce and I filed bankrupt like my life was really like nothing was working out and I was trying desperately to put the pieces back together in this kind of like rebuild my life moment right when I found out my dad was dying and I I think my best friend saw that I needed some help and she gifted me an astrology reading and I normally would have said absolutely not like love you to my core wacky best friend a hundred percent no 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 and I said yes and it changed my life And I think it's because I opened myself up to believing and having hope and, and this astrologer really, truly is phenomenal. And so now I am a believer, even though that's that cynic is still in there, you know, I'm still a hundred percent. I mean, I really, I, you know, I come at the world from an academic background. I really like the brain science. I like to talk to people about grief and loss and, you know, from a, this is what's happening to your hippocampus and your hypothalamus. And, you know, I, Mm. I really like that. And I definitely think sometimes my mom shows up as a butterfly and I Mm. wish I didn't, it is not linear and I wish I could fit it into some categories. Yeah. Yeah. I know if we could only fit everything into all those categories. Right. But I mean, I have learned that not everything can be explained by facts and logic and it's just, I have too many things that have shown up in my life, especially on this journey where I'm like, okay, well, you know, I, and it's not a sense of proof. I always thought to myself, well, you know, if I can see it, I'll believe it. If you give me the proof, then I'll take it in. But now I've realized there's some kind of sense of knowing that is beyond proof that I have since my father passed away, since the night that since his last breath in that room and in that moment, which I write about it in the book. And it, if you would have told me, you know, 10 years ago or five years ago, even that I would be doing any of this, I really would have thought you had me mistaken with for somebody else. There's no way, but my life is upside down. And I think that his, it's terribly heartbreaking because I wish, and I think that he is here because I do believe in the spiritual side now that he can like witness this, mm-hmm. his spirit and this oneness anyways, but it is a little heartbreaking that I finally went through all of this and I've grown so much and I've changed so much. And I'm, I don't think there is another side. So I'm not going to say I'm on the other side of it, but I've, I've gotten up off the ground and I've, you know, I've moved through a lot of my grief and processed quite a bit and grown from it. And, uh, you know, I couldn't have done that without so much of that pain and loss. And it just is. It's such a hopeful, my background is as a trauma therapist. And so, you know, from, from that perspective, what, what we mean is there's energy inside the system from childhood or from another event. And when trauma, when we don't show up for trauma, when we don't have enough support, when we, you know, when the energy gets stuck in there, it can sort of become the definition of how I live. 
So I live smaller because I don't trust people or I, you know, I live tighter or I have expectations or I get too afraid. And so the thing that happened to me becomes the definition of sort of the parameters of my life. And I think the thing that's the hardest when a loved one, like someone who is as beloved as your dad was to you, that is the last thing anyone would want you or him, that your life would be less than because he died rather than, rather than incredible on account of knowing him. And I think when we talk about this concept of traumatic growth, that's what we're talking about is the bridge from here to there. The fact that he died is the fact that he died. And if we just stop there, you can sit in that mud puddle for the rest of your life. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. You know, I've seen my grief process is very different than my mother's who lost her husband and and it's, it's been very different for her. You know, it's, it's hard. It's getting out of that mud puddle and like really, really hard. My dad died two years before my mom died. And I was reading this article in the financial times because my husband handed it to me. I don't read the newspaper. He was like, Oh, you might be interested in this article. Um, and the article was reminding us that Prince Philip died two years before the queen and that there's all this data that people are so much more susceptible to illness and death after their partner dies. Mm -hmm. I hadn't thought about that in terms of my mom. I had only thought about what her life looked like and that she died, but she was married to my dad for 50 years. And Mm -hmm. the notion that like, what was hard for me after my dad died was nothing like what was hard for her. And I don't know that I really understood that until she died because I didn't have the relationship with my dad that I did with my mom. My mom was a center tent pole. My dad was definitely an outside peg. He was not, you know, somebody I checked in or needed a lot of support from. And I really had a lot of like, God, I wish I could have talked. I could have, I would have shown up for her differently if I had understood even a fraction of her. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think generationally too, we have, we're, I'm able to have this conversation with you, but you know, my mom was, you know, born and raised in Scotland and, you know, a different era of not really discussing these things and not having dialogue for it. And so, yeah, it's, it's different for everybody. And it's, but yeah, it's a, I'm so grateful for you to have a platform like this so we can discuss Mm -hmm. these. It's so very helpful. What you just said a minute ago, which is, you know, I, this was so hard and so awful, but beauty came of it is something. So that, yeah. So tell me, was Paris already a important part of your life or were, was that also something that was new for you? No, Paris wasn't an important part of my life. Well, I mean, the, the way that came about was I had recently broken up. I was divorced, yep. still parenting two kids in LA. I had just ended a post-divorce romance. I thought it was my second chance at love and it wasn't with this Frenchman. So he was born in Paris on November 2nd, 1968. So the end of this mind-blowing reading where all of a sudden I went from cynic to believer in five minutes because this astrologer blew me away truly. And she spoke of my father's illness and his death and my writing career that I had like abandoned, you know, 25 years ago and all these different things that I thought, God, that's so weird that she knows all these things. And so I said, you know, would you mind looking up his birth chart? You know, he was born in Paris on November 2nd, 1968. She looks it up. Very long story short, because I messed up the date, but long story short, she said, he's in line with your point of destiny. And she explained to me in astrology what your point of destiny means. And 
And that's how the Paris came into it. I said, well, you know, and finally, after falling on the floor and crying miserably when my father, I found out he had two weeks left to live because he was trying to figure out how he wanted to die. And he's calling a family meeting and love my father so much. And I decided that I was, you know, Philippe, my ex wasn't the only one that I was going to track down every man I could find born in Paris on November 2nd, 1968. I felt like the world had me in checkmate. And like, my father was dying. My business was collapsing. My ex, I was told my unavailable ex was my soulmate. And I was like, hold on a second. I'm going to figure this out. Like, I just felt like I had all these balls in there. Like, I'm going to figure this out. And in that moment, I felt like I did. And actually, oddly enough, I did. I figured it out. It ended up being this beautiful, crazy adventure. But that's how the Paris of it came in. Yeah. God, that's amazing. My other question was going to ask, what had been your relationship to writing before mm. This process, because what I, what I notice from people that I am working with and lots of my podcast guests, what they'll say is, you know, I hadn't ever been a writer. I hadn't written in years. I think the energy of grief, which is, you know, what gets created after loss, I think it will out. It wants to move through you. So what, how, what was your relationship to writing before, before yeah. you began this okay. I started writing at age 15 and it really came out of trauma because I was expelled from a boarding school that I was going to, that I didn't know how to process at that age, what was going on, a few things happening at that boarding school that really weren't, probably shouldn't have been happening. But, and so that's how I started writing. I started writing letters after I was expelled from the school to friends and I was processing. I learned how to process on the page Mm -hmm. and express and grieve and express joy and friendship and all these things. So I started writing at 15, ended up after college, studied screenwriting in college. Then I got a job at a magazine and I started, I was a magazine writer and I did that. So I had an early, like in my early twenties career, like piecing it together, writing for like Cosmopolitan or Shape Magazine or like all, you know, and I became an editor at a magazine. So writing really felt like home to me. It was the way that I kind of found myself, even if I was writing about, you know, Matthew McConaughey or whatever. And I was journaling and writing on my own. Then uh, I really felt like a failure as a writer because it was really hard to get work in magazines as, yeah, I mean, that's hard enough. It doesn't even exist now really, but, and I gave it up and I had another couple careers and I just had a horrible sense of self-worth and self-esteem And I became a mother and decided that I needed to shelf that part of my being. And that was no one's fault, but my own, but I really did. And I wanted to devote myself to being a quote unquote, good mother. And so I stopped writing and it was only through this journey after when I, you know, my father passed and I started going on this wild adventure that when I started that Instagram, I used it in a way it was, I couldn't stop myself from expressing my, you know, I think it started the night my dad passed away and I wrote, you know, a post on Instagram, you know, saying who he was. And then I got stuck in the position of doing the celebration of life speech, which I was terrified about. And I started processing through writing again. And, and then I went on this journey and I was somewhat documenting these things on Instagram and at the end of going to Paris and, you know, tracking down 15 potential soulmates and going on this wild, beautiful, crazy adventure, 
I came back, I spread my father's ashes on the ocean. He had been gone for one year. It was the one year anniversary. And I remember I was literally, I can see the spot that I was standing in on the street outside of my house. And I got an email from a literary agent and that I didn't know, I mean, complete stranger. And she said, you know, I found your Instagram. I love what you have done. And she understood the spirit of kind of who I was and what I was writing about. It wasn't really just about, you know, finding my soulmate and tracking, but it was about sisterhood and community and friends. And, and that was really what I was, and and my dad, and she said, if you ever, you know, have it in you or would consider writing a book, I would love to have a conversation with you about it. Wow. Yeah. And my astrologer had said, your point of destiny is to tell a story. You need to go back to writing. This is what fuels your soul. You know, real estate is what you're good at. But, and I thought, how can I not look at the universe and like all this stuff and try? So I was terrified and COVID hit and I couldn't, I have a lot, you know, really, I'm a wiggly person. I have ADD. I'm always running around and moving around and and I couldn't, you know, or we were on lockdown, stay at home orders. And my computer was the only thing that I could run to. So I did, I wrote the first two chapters and I sent them off to her. And she said, yep, you've got a story there. You're, you're a writer. And I thought, I mean, that weird feeling of what, you know, really could that actually be? It took me a long time to even accept and hold that word. Like, you know, being a writer. I don't know why we make this word so precious. People call themselves real estate agents all the time and they haven't ever right. sold a house. <laughs> <laughs> but calling yourself a writer is a hard one. I still feel that way. Like, oh, really? Do I belong in this bookstore? Do I belong? How can I have a conversation with Zibi Owens? Like she's, you know what I mean? I know. It's intimidating. But, you know, that's writing helped heal my heart. And it helped my sister heal a lot too. And it helped my mom and, and, and it hopefully doesn't feel like, you know, therapy on the page. And I, I don't believe that it does. And I've had a lot of people reach out to me and, and say that they connected in certain ways because of this community that we need, that isn't always there. You know, not everybody has a sister like me to run off to Paris to. So, you know, just wanting to connect with people and to create a dialogue. I mean, I joke in my book that there's no manual for where's the manual on death. There probably are manuals on death, by the way, I just hadn't read any, but not the kind that I needed in that moment of how do I deal with, you know, the mortician walking into my house and me canceling three times and like all the awkwardness, all the awkwardness, all the awkwardness, but it's real life. Yeah. You know? Well, it's, and it is what's relatable, right? Because you talk about that awkwardness and somebody else tells you a story of someone coming in and doing something because, you know, there are some things that are sort of true about death and that awkwardness, people not knowing what to say and showing up with weird shit and, you know, saying terrible things or insisting on weird things like that is part of it. I think what's difficult in the pain of it is some of that causes additional pain. And it's hard to believe that other people are going to throw knees and elbows when you are in so much pain. But when you talk about it and everyone has a story that's like, oh my God, my great aunt Gladys said this crazy thing that that is universal, that being able to even know that like, it's not your responsibility to make the world pain-free after you've had right. the most incredible pain. There's going to be a secondary, a tertiary. You're going to have a oh bunch of, you know, pains that are coming in. What I really love that you're talking about with the writing, 
which I think about this with anything that is creative. I think most adults that I know have sort of a bifurcated life. They, they have a serious academic work with the front part of their logical you know, work life that involves using a computer and spreadsheets and whatever. I don't happen to work and live in a community of like lots of artists and lots of people mm -hmm. who are making their way as their primary way, front facing as artists. Right. But what I have discovered is when I'm talking to people about what has been your grief process, what have you needed? What has been instinctual? What have you moved towards? What has felt healing? Art is part of that. You know, when you're a baby, you don't really know how you're doing until like the person holding you smiles at you. And then you reflexively smile back at them. And then a smile actually creates, I mean, there are things called smile therapy, like that creates a good sensation in your body. So actually, mm -hmm. since we were tiny, we have looked to other people to sort of help us know, not in a codependent way, but like in a healthy co-regulation way, how am I doing? Am I okay? Right. So when you feel unbelievably fucking crazy because the world doesn't make any sense because it just exploded, yeah. you put that out to the world and say, this is how crazy it is. This is what it feels like. This is what I'm doing. And it's as much the process of like being first witnessing yourself, then being witnessed by others. Yeah. And then maybe taking all that work and all that pain and all that and turning it into something that other people can take a little morsel of and be nourished by. Yeah. yeah. It's not easy though. It's true. It's not easy. I've had to actually back away from looking at anything online. There's not everybody's kind. And I'm like, you know what, this is going to find who it's supposed to find whoever, whatever I'm supposed to, why I did this. I don't even know in a way, right. you know, it's like uh, why my life went in this direction. I don't know. I just hope that that whoever this book is supposed to find or the story is supposed to find, it will find and it will help. And, and I can't, you know, worry about the rest of it because it is a very vulnerable place to be. I definitely overshared. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think most of us do like one of the questions I ask people when I'm working with them, you know, in the early days is like, have you done that thing where you go into Starbucks and the guy asks you, how are you? And you're like, oh my God, my person died. And I'm like, and most people are like, well, it wasn't Starbucks, but it was the grocery store, like right. a laundromat or whatever. Yep. Most people, because, you know, again, we don't make sense to ourselves. We're not really able to be who we once were. And so we, our boundaries aren't clear, like what keep yeah. us safe. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that we all have these different journeys and, you know, we're all doing it differently and we're all just trying to do the best that we can, hopefully. Yeah. You know? and just try to lead with love in every moment of my life. And, and, you know, as much as I can think that I grew and I learned so much from, you know, my father passing and going through this journey, I, I was so worried that the day this book came out, that something was going to happen to my mom. I don't know why I had this instinctual thing. And I was like, Oh, I just went through this grief thing. I finally am putting it out into the world. And something did happen to her. She almost died. And I realized it cracked open all of this this stuff that I haven't healed from, I realized, oh boy, I have so much work to do. Cause I, you know, thank God she's fine now, but we did have a really big scare and, and hospital visit oh, and, all things. and it realized, it made me realize, no, this is not a, a, a journey that you get to the end to. <laughs> do you know what I mean? You really, this is, it's in me and yeah. just changes and moves and grows as I do, you know? 
I think we know so little about what it means to be in the early stages of grief and, and that that is like a street fight and, you know, it's five senses full on physical as much as birth ever was, or pregnancy ever was, you know, I don't have the same body I had before my dad died. So we just leave people to kind of like, feel like they're inventing the wheel, which is pretty brutal. Yeah. So what are you doing? How many years has it been since your dad? It'll be four years this December. So what can you tell us four years out? I don't know if I can tell you anything for you. I don't think I have any wisdom earned, although I do for me, but to like tell as a like lesson or something, because it's so different. It just changes and evolves. And I see like so much beauty in, in, in my father's death. Now it's such a weird thing to say, because I don't want to say that to anybody because it's, there wasn't in, in a lot of it. And it was just gut wrenching and awful. And it can be really, really hard. I'm three years out from my mom and I think six years, no, five years out from my dad. And the only thing that I know is that it is not what I expected it to be really. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, that even when we hit anniversaries, I'm like, yeah, no, sometimes that matters. Sometimes it doesn't. Mm-hmm. I have, I have noticed, you know, the little like anthropologist in me notices that fall feels a certain kind of way. The, like my mom raised six kids, the, like going back to school part of my life has always felt really tethered to her schedule. So I, I miss her. And so that seems to be a standard, but I, yeah, I think that, I think your answer is the honest one, which is whatever wisdom I have is for me. And it's probably not static. It shifts and changes. Yes, it shifts and changes. And I, and I think one of the things I was trying to do in some ways was let go of, like, I wanted to just have grief pa- pass through me. Let's get to the end of this. Like, if I just get through this grief to the other side and be able to let go of my dad or let go of my, you know, past love heartbreak that I was, I was trying to let go of so much. Yeah. And then by the end of it, I was like, oh, it's actually letting in all those feelings and letting in the pain of it, the love of it, that I've learned that my grief is love. And so the more painful it is, I try to feel it as love instead of loss. Mm -hmm. And that has helped me tremendously because I have opened my heart to much more in my life instead of just trying to wall off. I was trying to wall off. Like I'm strong. I got this. I'm on my own. I don't need anybody. I can do this. I don't need to talk about it. I've got blonde hair and I'm looking great. You know what I mean? Like, cause I went through this whole hair transformation after yeah, my, yeah, yeah, yeah. my hair was falling out after like being so oh, strong. And I realized, you know, I don't, I don't have to pretend like I got it all together. I don't have to look perfect. I don't have to, you know, know how to answer a question on a podcast. Like, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know, you know, and that's just part of it. And, and I don't have to let go. I mean, I'm still this necklace here. These are my dad's ashes. I'm still wearing them around my neck because I have a dad's wedding ring. Yeah. And it's okay not to let go. I, 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 you know, yeah. And I, and even that, the concept of letting go in my writing workshop, we talk about what does that mean to you? That it's really important for some people to say, I let them go. I let that pain go. I didn't, you know, it's not defining me. And for other people, the notion of letting them go is insane. Why would I ever let them go? They're imprinted on my heart. 
there. And so, so again, I just love the notion of what language allows us because it's a constant exploration of, you know, of coming to know ourselves. And I think, I think the reflecting ourselves outwards, whether it's to one person, like one thing that I do and I encourage my people to do is I, oh, if you are having a moment where you are in grief, whether you're triggered in grief or you knew it was coming to just send a text to a couple of people. My texts say, I'm in it. I'm in it right now. I'm in it. And they say, I'm sending you love. You're not alone. I care about you. I'm so sorry. You know, and I know that I'm like, I'm in it. Like I'm underwater. Like I got to get myself out of the water. It might take me a couple of days. It might take me a couple of hours, but I have that for me. I have learned that I feel less scared and more in control when I spider web my yes. grief so that other people, they're not doing it for me, but they know that it's happening. They like, like, I, like I've been hijacked, like, yeah. okay, well now we, we don't, we're not thinking of you as sitting at your desk and writing. We know you're in a fast moving car with dangerous people like right. that, that to me seems to have stayed true that being able to say to people, I'm not where you think I am. Yeah. And where I am is scary and hard. And them say, we care about that. We care that that's where you are. That has been a piece of learning for me because I think what I did previous to this, and it's always so funny to me, you know, my early childhood, you know, my most seminal memory is a, is a day when a teenager who was beloved to my family died. And so like, you know, grief is stitched to every moment of, my life, when I became a trauma therapist, I thought, well, I know all the things and I, I'll just circumnavigate all the hardship that other people have with all my knowledge and my degrees and all my things doesn't work that way. Mm. And I think I sort of believed what society says, which is like, you know, keep it hermetically sealed. And, you know, I don't want to keep it hermetically sealed. I don't believe it's possible. I books like yours are, are, offering us the invitation to do it. Yeah. It really just takes our insistence. That's it. it. It, you know, to change the culture of grief and loss would literally only take people saying, I'm going to start talking about this. Yeah. Right. I agree with you a hundred billion percent. You know, every time somebody comes up to me and says, wow, it's so courageous that you're talking about this. I'm like, it shouldn't be, we should just be able to actually say who we are, say what we're feeling, say what we're going through and know that, that, we can hold the hands of the people around us and, you know, call them. And that's a huge for me is realizing I'm, I don't have to be an Island. You know, I can reach out and ask for help Yeah. when I need help. I can ask for help. And I can, even if I don't need anything just to say, I'm here, this just is how you can see me. So you can see that my experience is yeah. what it is, right. That, you know, again, social media sometimes makes it all look bright and shiny yeah. and that can be good, but you know, the reality of our experience needs to happen. Before I let you go, I do want to ask, was there anything that was surprisingly helpful to you? Obviously your whole book is about this <laughs> astrology. <sighs> Aside from that, were there things that people did or showed up with where you think, wow, I just never would have thought of that. Or that was really surprising that that was good for me or the opposite. Everybody kept bringing me like bread rolls and I really wish they had stopped. My dad passed right before Christmas. Yeah. And my kids were on a trip with their dad. They were coming back and I was like, okay, I need to create Christmas magic, right? I'm a 
single mom. I got to make Christmas magic. You know, it's not like it was before I've tried really hard after my divorce to like, keep that Christmas magic going. Like I'm like actually on like some kind of like theater performance or something, (laughs) but, and I, and I think I got my Christmas tree and then I collapsed and I was like, I can't do this. I cannot do this. And my kids weren't back yet. And my door was open and a work colleague came to check on me and both of her parents had died many years ago. So she knew, yeah, like, you know, she just knew to check on me. She came in with some flowers and she saw me laying on the couch with a Christmas tree on the floor and no holiday cheer. I got a little crazy and I bought like 20 black dresses because I didn't know what to do and what to wear to a funeral. And I ended up obviously wearing something from my closet and returned them all. But my house was filled with funeral dresses. I was laying on the floor and she was like, okay, it's going to be okay. I'm going to cry thinking about it because she changed my you know, world right then. And she said, you stay here, don't get up. You know, and it was the first time I talked to somebody like, what am I going to do? How am I going to just create magic and like Christmas with my kids? Or how am I going to feed them? Like just cooking, just standing felt like a mountain in that moment. Right. I came back the next day with like all these bags from Target that my company, like people had pulled together with her spearheading it. She decorated my tree. She wrapped gifts for my kids. She bought them like Christmas onesies. The agency sent Christmas dinner. I was able to have my mom and my sister come over and I fed them all. And we were just, it was the first, it, I don't know, it just changed my life. And that was, you know, me having the courage to even just let her into my heart and say, I need help. I don't know how am I going to do this? You know, it's so funny that it still makes me cry right now because it's making me cry because I remember that moment and how I felt, but the beauty of her showing up and her, you know, gifting me the wisdom of her experience from losing her two parents and knowing that we need to show up for each other. It matters, you know, to have this dialogue, what you're doing, having this, you know, and it doesn't always have to be a serious conversation, by the way. Like I have a lot of like real dark humor. Like this is kind of a funny book. You wouldn't know it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of a funny book because I find a lot of like humor in, I mean, my sister and I were doing a dance off at my dad's like deathbed before he died because we needed a dance off. And, you know, we're like, okay, nobody's going to die today. Let's have dance off. Is grieving. I mean, that is another energetic way. And that story, God, that, I mean, you gave me tear up. That story is beautiful. And I think it's the magic of people who can sort of move past the moment. Like she could have seen you and said, oh, you don't want visitors, you know, good luck. And she knew to move towards because of her own experience. And that's the phrase I use a lot is like, just go closer. If someone doesn't want you closer, you will not miss the cue that they want you to get the fuck out of just right. go a little bit closer. And I think, you know, just like everything else, if we can push past the awkward, there's yes. so much intimacy in that moment. Like you will never forget. Oh that. yeah. You will never forget what it felt like that your company was able to do for you, that it, you know, at a time when you couldn't do for yourself, that is human connection at its yeah. best, deepest, most incredible core. What I often say to people is, you know, that's what your friends want to be able to do for you. Yeah. If there's any way to give them a cue, do it because that is, you know, you're not hassling them when they're bringing over a casserole. Like they made that casserole for you, hoping that this would show how much they care and the love that they have for you. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's, and it's scary. Listen, it's scary when you come into somebody's home and they're on the floor, like crying from their, like, I was probably a really scary person. And she came with another colleague the next day when she delivered all that stuff. And I don't think she had been through the loss of both of her parents and, you know, that guttural kind of from your like or crying, it's kind of a scary thing to witness. And, and, and Monique, my friend said to my other friend, don't worry, like, it's okay. Cause she'd been there and it was okay. And it's all okay. You know, I mean, but it is true. You know, it's like, I always feel like, oh, I don't want to bother somebody. If I send her flowers, she probably already has 20 bouquets or if I don't want what, casserole. She's probably not eating. And she's got this meal train anyways, you know, and it doesn't need to be a big gesture. It doesn't have to cost you any money. It can literally yeah. be a text, a phone call, you know, don't be afraid to mention in my case, in my case, I can only speak to me, the people who weren't afraid to reach out to me because it can be scary. I don't want to bring up her dad because you know it's going to upset her. And I understand that too. I understand it all. So I don't judge anybody forever the way that we handle anything in life, especially grief. But I've learned it's okay to go there. You'll know. You'll read the case. Yeah, I mean, you were you were already upset about your dad. So anyone who's like, I don't want to upset them, I'm like, well, that ship has passed. They may be having a pause, a moment where they were not triggered into a lot of feeling, but it's just a moment. Like when you're in fresh grief, you're not going to make them feel bad. They already are feeling bad. And I love asking this question because I've heard the most amazing answers and the answers have always, they've changed me and how I think about what does showing up look like? You know, I've had people who have said that the person booked them massages and, you know, made them come out of the house and that the body work and being touched and being, Mm -hmm. that would never have occurred to me to do to someone that feels like physical and bossy. And, but that was the most beautiful thing. One of my dear friends (laughs) sent me a pair of like pale pink suede Adidas sneakers that said death sucks. These sneakers don't. And they make me so happy. They make me so happy. My dearest, that was when my dad died. My, my dearest friend in the world came and lots of people have heard this story before, but she just, she was like, where's your mom's files and her phone numbers. And I don't know how she did this, but she had asked someone else who's parent had died, what was the thing that would have been helpful? And they said, the thing I hated the most was calling all the doctors and telling them my parent had died. So by the time she left two hours later, she had called every medical professional that my mother had and said, you need to know she died. That I, right. I mean, so, so, and I borrow that when people, I borrow it, when things are happening, I say, can I call your pediatrician? Can I call the dentist? Can I, you know, what can I do? Do you want to export your contacts to me? Do you want me to make phone calls? Do you want, and it isn't because that's the right thing to do, but it's a thing to do. And I think sometimes when people are like, I don't know what to do, just showing them a menu. Here's 70 things that other people did. Can Mm -hmm. do any of them seem authentic to you? Because you want to show up as a supporter being authentic. Like people should not be asking me to cook a casserole. I am not a good cook. That is not what you want me to do, but, but I'll take your kids to Six Flags, like in the back of the car. I'll take them all weekend. You know, I can, I, those are the things. So knowing the kind of griever you are with and the person, the kind of supporter that you are, those are the kind of things we can think about ahead of time. We can give some thought. We can have that discussion with people. I love this. Yeah. God, well, listen, the rawness of your story and the, the humor and the excitement of the trajectory of the book 
to me feels like such a gift, the way that you kind of unfolded all the truth of it for us today. I mean, I just feel incredibly grateful and I'm really hopeful that our paths continue to cross as people who are, you know, living with the gifts of grief, right? That we're offering hope to people. It's not, I'm not trying to tell you it's not hard. It's the worst thing that ever happened to me. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. And it has left my life, you know, touched in ways that are so beautiful. This podcast being one of them, the fact that I get to talk to authors and get to have these incredible conversations. I get to have a real deep, meaningful human conversation about, you know, some of the stuff that doesn't get talked about. So I love it grateful. I'm grateful for your book. I'm grateful for your conversation. I'm not so so happy that this exists. This platform exists. Thank you for everything you do. It's so needed. And I'm so happy that and honored that you asked me to be a part of it. Thank you so much, truly for my core. This was just a, this was a delight. My whole day is going to be different because of this conversation.